Welcome to the Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Crystal Downing, along with her husband, David, directs the Marion Wade Center at Wheaton College, a research hub for scholarship on the Inklings and Inkling-adjacent writers, including Dorothy Sayers. Dorothy Sayers is the subject of Dr. Downing's new book, Subversive, Christ, Culture, and the Shocking Dorothy Sayers. And a starred review, Publishers Weekly said, this is a powerful intellectual portrait of an important 20th century writer who merits closer study. It was my great pleasure to talk with Crystal Downing. I think you're going to enjoy this conversation too. Crystal Downing, thank you so much for being on the Habit Podcast. I appreciate you making time for me. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. Yeah, so your new book, which will have released um, about the time this podcast releases, is Subversive, Christ Culture, and the Shocking Dorothy L. Sayers. Right. What's shocking about Dorothy L. Sayers? What is shocking is the way she uses language to subversively communicate the truth. As far as Dorothy Sayers was concerned, the truth doesn't change. But the signs we use to communicate that truth need to change if we're going to shock people into the realization of what the murder of God really means. In fact, my my first chapter is called The Murder of God. And I kind of start out by saying a lot of Christians think that society has murdered God. But what Sayers tells us is that the essential doctrine of Christianity is that God has been murdered because Jesus was God incarnate. And so she does these little twists with language in order to make people sit up. And it got her into a lot of trouble because of that. Because most people just want to hear the same old platitudes, things that make them comfortable. Um, Sayers compared it to a stained glass window view of Jesus versus glass shattering Mm. recognition of what Christian orthodoxy is really about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So this is not a biography exactly, right? No, there, there will be a few biographical details. Sayers herself actually disliked, and I talk a little bit about this in my book, she disliked the focus on what she called the personal angle, where a person is listened to just if they are famous rather than because they have something to say. So the whole problem with celebrity Christians, and part of it is she had some skeletons in her own closets that um, she didn't want people to obsess over. And of course, as soon as those skeletons were discovered, people did obsess over them. And they stopped looking at the, the work, the integrity of her work. Mm-hmm. By the way, these skeletons in her closet, did they come out after she died or before? Yes, years after she had yeah. died. Uh-huh. Uh, someone, she had adopted a young boy when he was around, well, prepubescent, and um, someone started looking in registers to find out who the actual mother of this young boy was that Sayers adopted and discovered. That Sayers was the mother. 
Uh-huh. Yeah. So she had an illegitimate child. And the trouble is then people just focus on that right. rather than the brilliance of what she did. She, as she wrote C.S. Lewis, she got thousands of letters from people telling her that for the first time in their lives, they understood what the truth of Christ's death and resurrection really meant. And the, the irony is that she did it by shocking people. Yeah. And Christians were appalled by what she did. They tried to, and uh, this is pretty famous. Everybody who's heard Sayers knows about this. Her famous radio plays about the death, resurrection of Jesus. And um, when the, she had, um, Um, meeting with journalists when she read from one of her plays before the BBC radio started broadcasting them in December 1941. Uh, Journalists played up the fact that Sayers did not use King James English (laughs) for her plays. And in fact, some of her disciples spoke slang and worse. And this actually was a headline in one newspaper. Some of it was American slang. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, it, Christians started this censorship campaign all over England trying to get to prevent BBC radio from broadcasting. They sent letters to Winston Churchill, to the Archbishop of Canterbury, demanding these plays be taken off the air. Sayers got hate mail. She got one postcard addressed, you nasty old sourpuss. She got um, nasty phone calls because she was not using the proper language. And so that becomes a microcosm of why she's important. That um, because of the scandal she generated, and her plays are very orthodox, but she still, she does other things, and we can get to that later. She... um, does other unusual things that kind of pushes us out of our comfort zone, but it is totally Christian orthodoxy, <laughs> yeah. but with new language, new ways of thinking. Anyway, because of the scandal, thousands of people turned it, tuned in because they saw all these headlines in the paper about this um, subversive series of plays Um, on the radio, and what they heard was the gospel message in language they could understand, and that brought thousands to Christ. Yeah, uh, it is a subversive message, isn't it? Yes, it is, and Jesus was always her mentor. I mean, she just constantly reiterated um, how Jesus was subversive, loving but subversive. Yeah. And his parables calculated were calculated to offend, right? Yeah. Oh, that's right. That's right. I mean, um, he did some pretty radical things like uh, whipping the money changers out of the temple. Mm -hmm. And that uh, becomes something that um, I spend quite a bit of time talking about how Christians have 
reduced Christianity to other religions by making it um, reflect what I, I borrow this phrase from a famous philosopher, an economy of exchange. Mm-hmm. And um, Jesus and Christianity, what distinguishes Christianity from all other religions is that it's not about um, exchangeism. In other words, do this, you get salvation. Um, go through this ritual, you get God's favor. You know, and that is how most religions operate. I mean, it's literalized with the idea of karma in Eastern religions. You know, you live a certain way, you get in exchange uh, coming back reincarnated in better life. Christianity is subversive of um, that economy of exchange of all these other religions by saying salvation is a gift and all you have to do is accept it. (laughs) And, you know, once you put it that way, you go, yeah, of course. But when you start using new language, like when you start putting it in the language of an economy of exchange, it forces you to think about it in a new way. And so since Sayers, since is my mentor, I tried as much as possible to use new language to communicate um, the way she was using new language. Can you tell me what you, some, can you give me a specific example of a way that you tried to use new language and communicate? Well, one thing is that phrase, economy of exchange, I borrowed that phrase from Jacques Derrida, uh-huh. who is the famous godfather of deconstruction. But what a lot of Christians don't realize is um, Derrida's approach generated what is known as the religious turn in philosophy. Because Derrida said, even though he called himself, he said, I rightly pass for an atheist. Um, he said, for a religion to be true, it would need to operate by the idea of a gift. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so then I am showing how, and it seems like I'm getting much more philosophical in the book than I am. I um, actually wrote it intentionally for a popular audience. And I just borrowed the phrase economy of exchange, but then show how Sayers is constantly um, reflecting that. It's like she anticipated this great philosopher half a century in advance. Yeah. Um, for instance, she'll talk about, you know, unless you have faith as a mustard seed, and she'll say, well, this seedy condition of faith, <laughs> he says that all too many people interpret it in terms of economics. Well, if I have enough faith, I'll get something in exchange. Mm-hmm. And that's how all religions operate. Uh-huh. You know, that, that language of gift sounds sweet. And, you know, like it, it's something we're used to. It's that, that language, especially people who, who use, you know, Christian language. Um, I, I'm just thinking about when Jesus in his parables portrayed gift, grace as a gift in his stories. Those stories are offensive, right? Yeah. The, the story of, of the, of the, the uh, farmer who hired the people at the different times of day. Yes. Yeah. And the the guy who, who, you know, hired on at the end of the day, got paid the same as the guy at the end of the day. That's a gift. 
if we, if we talk about a gift, that sounds sweet. But when we hear that story, uh, that's, that's subversive. That's right. That's an offensive story. We're offended by that. Yeah. Even, yeah. Right? Um, the, the prodigal son. Yeah. I think we, we're so used to it. But I think most of us, if it happened to us, we would feel the way the older brother does. We're going, that's not fair. I stayed at home and I worked hard and I honored my father. You can't just give him what he doesn't deserve. Yeah. And um, Sayers even thinks that she talks about, especially during World War II, she says, a lot of people are suddenly taking an interest in Christianity, I think, (laughs) to hedge their bets. Um, One of the reasons I felt moved to write this book, um, and someone actually reached out to me, a publisher reached out to me and asked me to write it, because I had written a just brief article for Christianity Today, where they had, I had been recruited to write, how is Sayers relevant to our own times? And I was in the midst of moving, like the moving van was going to arrive in five days. I still had to get in my grades at college. So I just wrote out something really, really quickly. Uh, I didn't have time to do fancy scholarship. And it was the best thing that ever happened because it forced me to not be use my scholarly apparatus and just talk about what Sayers has for us today. And then an editor reached out and um, said, I want to see a whole book on this amazing woman. More people need to know about this woman. So, you know, when you get an offer from a publisher, you're going to uh, take advantage of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, good. So, okay. Uh, you mentioned that, that Sayers uh, used edgy and sometimes hilarious metaphors um, to give us new ways to think about Christianity. Um, and you've, you've already seems like you already mentioned one or two. What are some of your favorite of those edgy and hopefully hilarious metaphors for rethinking? Um, Well, one of the ways she described the atonement to a friend is she said, "Uh, this isn't edgy as much as humorous. Sometimes they're just hilarious. Um, She says, well, um, if we have a disagreement and you throw the teapot at me and it breaks, there's no way we can um, unbreak the teapot. We just may have to choose to drink together from the shaving mug. And (laughs) she was saying that there's no way we can unbreak um, our our fall from uh, uh, unity with God uh-huh. as represented by the fall of Adam and Eve. But there's the possibility of reconciliation with mm. God that we drink in the shaving mug. And you just go, what? <laughs> um, and in my chapter, I have a whole chapter on her, her politics. And basically, I'm showing that sometimes she sounds like a liberal, sometimes like a conservative. And she is modeling both and thinking that uh, we all are both Cain and Abel. Mm. We are all both victims and victimizers. Mm. And I think it's a a very relevant message at this particular moment in our country. Um, 
<clears throat> Let me see. Another shopping, shocking thing to answer your question. She did shocking. She has shocking components of the man born to be king. So not only did she shock people by using American slang for the disciples, and of course, they spoke in slang. They were working class. Mm -hmm. You know, she says everybody, they just want the stained glass image view. But she also turned Judas into the most intelligent, passionately committed to Jesus disciple. And people were so used to, ooh, Jesus, the, I mean, Judas, the villain. Mm-hmm. And that kind of upset them. Again, she was, tr- she was changing things up. And she actually said um, that if Judas was despicable from the start, your only conclusion is that Jesus was naive mm. or that Jesus was choosing a despicable person just to achieve certain ends. Mm -hmm. And so she totally changed our perception. Again, she follows the biblical account that Judas betrays Jesus, but she, um, what she shows, and this is so relevant to Christians today. And I spend quite a bit of time talking about it because it's relevant to my own faith journey. And I, I, try to talk about my faith journey, again, to keep it non-academic. But she shows Judas being the first person that recognizes Jesus is not supposed to be a political revolutionary, that Jesus has to die for the sins of the people, that um, he is not meant to be this... um, uh, kind of popular uh, political type leader or even a popular religious leader, that mm-hmm. Jesus must be sacrificed. I mean, all the other disciples didn't recognize that. But the trouble is, and this is what's so brilliant about Sayers, how she kind of shocks us into seeing things in a new way. She then establishes that Judas was so certain of his interpretation, that his interpretation, though capturing part of the truth, he trusted his interpretation more than he trusted Jesus. Mm -hmm. Um, And what she does is she sets up, she invents a character, a zealot revolutionary, who sends a note to Jesus uh, saying, okay, you're going to Jerusalem. I have tied up for you a horse and a donkey. If you take the horse into Jerusalem for a triumphal entry, we zealots will follow you with our swords and spears to oust Roman control. However, if you're too weak to lead this important revolution, just take the donkey and we'll just know you're not going to be our leader. Mm. Well, Jesus takes the donkey. The trouble is, Judas didn't know about this interaction. And so when he sees all the people in the triumphal entry putting down their cloaks, waving palm branches, yelling Hosanna, they think, Judas thinks that Jesus has sold out to Hmm. be a popular figure. And that's why he betrays Jesus. So 
this gets into something that really concerned Sayers is how Christians often elevate certitude above faith. Mm. And um, I just talk about my own life. When I was growing up, I thought that's what faith was, was certitude, not realizing faith is the opposite of certitude. Um, I point out that in the King James Bible, since that's the, the Bible that people were reacting to, um, that Sayers didn't use King James English, the word faith or forms of the word faith appears in the King James Bible around 350 times. The word certitude never appears. Even the word certainty appears a mere seven times in the Bible. And uh, this was a revelation for me when I started reading Sayers. And I think a lot of Christians are that way. They think, oh, my faith isn't strong enough because I don't have certitude. But certitude is different from faith. Faith is trust. Faith means we don't have all the answers. And, and um, once again, I think Sayers was responding to her own background where unless you had certitude, there was something wrong. Uh, I really, I have compassion, especially for the phenomenon of the nuns. Uh, you know, the, all those, you know what the nuns are? Um, this is the the word. I, I mean, most people think of nuns, you know, wearing their habits. No, yeah, right. nuns is a word that has been employed to describe younger generations who, when they have to fill out forms and fill out, you know, what religion are you? They mark none. Gotcha. They yeah. are the nuns. And a lot of them were churched in their youth. Mm-hmm. And uh, we've had people visit us at the Wade who are just in despair for for their children who have given up on Christianity. But what I see, what they've given up on is a certitude from religion that then has swayed into the political sphere. Mm -hmm. And we see this, that you run into people who rather than saying, for me to live as Christ, it's for me to live as my party's political platform. And this happens on both the right and the left. Mm-hmm. You know, and um, Sayers had a phrase that she, she repeated about how do we achieve a delicate balance without falling into the certitude of one side or the other? And um, this aligns with the both and thinking that was established at the early ecumenical councils that Jesus wasn't either or. Jesus mm-hmm. was both and. Mm-hmm. Jesus was fully God and fully human. So that's a through line in my book. How does the incarnation affect the way we understand art, politics, theology? Yeah. Everything. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I, as I'm thinking about this idea of certitude and faith, um, one one way to of course, this is a podcast about writing and the writing process, right? Okay. Oh, I have a whole chapter about that in my oh, book. Oh, good. Let's talk about it in a minute. Um, I mean, maybe this will be a, an, an entree into that. You know, one way to to establish a readership is to offer certitude, right? 
Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it, it is a, it's, it's a lot easier to mm -hmm. preach to the choir. Of and, course. And to, to generate a following as a, as a writer, yeah. as an artist, as a speaker, as a whatever. Yes. It's harder to, to offer up a both and. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I know. And for that reason, she really uh, believed in the arts. Sayers mm -hmm. would love the rabbit room. She oh, oh she would so. be in her glory yeah. um, at a hutchmoot <laughs> because she really believed how you change people and change the way they think is through the arts. Just uh -huh. like she created these radio plays, even though they are totally um, endorsed the gospel message, she used her creative imagination to present a new way to think about ancient doctrine. Yeah. Oh, here's another shocking thing she did. Okay. <laughs> and then we'll get back to the yeah. creativity. Yeah. Um, she does this amazing thing with uh, the incident of the two thieves on the cross. Mm -hmm. And um, I didn't even notice this the first time I read through Man Born to be King, which is the collected plays, plays that C.S. Lewis after she sent him a copy in 1943, he, he read it every single year for his Lenten devotions. I mean, that's how powerful they were. But the trouble is, we tend to read even with the eyes of certitude. Oh, yeah, I know the gospel message. And I didn't even notice the subtlety of um, her subversive suggestions. So back to the thieves on the cross, which I didn't notice until recently. Um, that it shows Dismas, which is the traditional medieval name of uh, the penitent thief. Huh. It shows him just humoring Jesus. And he um, says something to the other thief saying, well, you know, um, this guy is loony. Actually, t describing Jesus as loony, and, but having compassion for him. I, I have the interaction. It's so much better um, the way she puts it. Right. Um, so it says um, in her stage directions that he felt sorry for the loony Jesus who actually thinks he's God Almighty. <laughs> um, and then uh, dismiss says in a deeply respectful tone humoring this harmless unit lunacy of this jesus hanging on the cross you remember me won't you when you come into your kingdom you know he's saying it just to humor jesus kind of feeling sorry oh, this guy thinks he's god yeah. and then jesus responds i tell you today you shall be with me in paradise and that very moment, Dismas suddenly recognizes and he says, and she has in her stage direction, after an astonished pause and in a changed tone, Dismas says, you're not mad. Hmm. And he confesses his unworthiness. Now, notice what Sayers has done by that. The traditional interpretation is that Dismas's the penitent's belief earned him salvation in exchange. Mm -hmm. No. It's not our belief that saves us. 
It's Jesus that saves us. Mm-hmm. That is a pretty subversive way to think of things, even though when you, once you think of it that way, you go, well, of course it's Jesus that saves us. Yeah. But it's just so much easier. And I notice myself falling into this exchanges idea because that's just the way religion is comforting. If I do this, I'll get this. Mm-hmm. But if I do this, I'll probably be punished for it. And I think there's a lot of people who love the idea of hell because they go, I've been doing my you know, job and being pietistic all these years and I'm going to get my due reward. Rather than thinking of it, I want to be with God in glory. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you asked, you said this podcast is about writing. Uh, my chapter on writing is called The Subversive Mind of the Maker. Okay. And Sayers wrote a whole book about creativity. And what is, again, shocking and subversive, nobody had ever done this before. She said that creativity confirms the fundamental doctrine of Christianity that God is a trinity. And you said nobody said, had said that before, um, Sayers? No, no. It was, this was a brand new way to think of it. I mean, Augustine had suggested we understand the trinity because we have these different aspects of ourselves. Mm-hmm. But no one had quite aligned it with the idea. And she took it back to the Imago Dei. Remember Genesis one twenty seven that God, um, that, that humans were created in the image of God, the Imago Dei. And she says, well, um, look at the context. What is God in Genesis 1? God is creator. Mm-hmm. God isn't a lawgiver. God isn't a judge. God isn't um, a, uh, even a redeemer. God mm-hmm. is a creator. So she said, when we are creative, that is when we are most fulfilling the Imago Day. Now, she acknowledges creativity can come in many forms. It's not like, well, only if you're a great musician, only if you can write a book, you know, um, you can be creative about cooking. She actually gives the image, she said, and okay, talk about subversive. This is shocking. She says, the only Christian work is good work well done. Mm-hmm. Whether it's church embroidery or sewage farming. She actually uses sewage farming. And she would say that a creative sewage farmer who thinks of how do you reduce the smell, well, I'm extrapolating from this, how do you reduce the smell, how do you use it for fertilizer, can be more creative than a lot of people who write books that say absolutely nothing new mm-hmm. that, is, that are just kind of an extension of a narcissistic, you know, I, I want to get published. Um, so anyway, back to the Imago Day. Um, just as God is three in one, so creativity is three in one. Mm-hmm. And she says, anyone who pays attention to their creative process will see the three components of their creativity. You first have an idea, you have energy and power. Those are the three terms she uses. And um, in her book, she actually says that artists have the power to explode a bomb in the State Department. She thinks you can make more change in politics through the arts 
than through just this constant polarized rhetoric, which people talk about certitude. People just fall down on one side or the other rather than um, think, how can we get people even to consider the political arena in um, shocking new ways? Mm -hmm. And how can we apply the incarnation to the political arena? So how do we apply the incarnation of the political arena, Crystal? She, in Mind of the Maker, she talked about how creativity can become um, similar to heresies that developed in the church. So to make it most simple, she described her trinity of creativity as the book. And you might say, especially relevant to rabbit room people, um, a song as thought, a song as written a song as it is heard. For her, it was a book as thought, book as written, book as heard. Um, And the first person, when you're writing a a new song um, or you're writing a new book, you're the first person that it is hearing it and, uh, uh, and or reading it. And so the three are one in the creative process, but then the power, which aligns with the Holy Spirit, spreads to others, and they become part of the creative process in their receptivity. Um, So the imbalances then are when a person gets obsessed with idea and um, in other words, write something only to propagandize people or to evangelize people. And we see this in some films that come out that they're just not really well made because there's their idea. They just want to get the message across. Yeah. So you need the second component, which is the um, energy, the energy of it, the incarnation of your idea the whether it's in sounds or words or paint on a canvas and that that the quality of that the integrity of the work is important um but some people get so into just that component it's like the she would call the first idea only um it's like the Manichaean heresy where um, good, there's good and evil and the body is evil. It's very Gnostic. Where, mm-hmm. um, she talks about Gnosticism with a capital uh, K, knowledge with a capital K in Gnosticism. Um, and you're wondering how this is going to get back. This is a complicated, <laughs> um, I mean, she's just so brilliant. There's so much to say. Um, <clears throat> so. In um, the political arena, then, people get so into their ideology, they th- stop thinking about in, um, incarnated bodies. And incarnation just means enfleshment, right? Yeah. That the incarnation, capital I, is about God's incarnation into human form. But um, people uh, aren't comfortable with the idea of embodiment. Mm-hmm. And I give stories about one time um, I was teaching at a Christian college and a, I said, I was teaching the poetry of Gerard Manley Hopkins and, I, and he was struggling, talking about struggling with his lust. And I said, well, Jesus was tempted by lust, but he didn't sin. 
I had a parent call my department chair and demanded that I be fired because oh. I suggested that Jesus was tempted by lust. And of course, the, the kerfuffle over um, uh, the last temptation of Christ, mm-hmm. you know, that it, it's about a temptation, but people don't want to think that Jesus was tempted, even though Hebrews tell us Jesus was tempted. Yeah. Uh, and so this, um, this Gnostic holding on to we have the right knowledge, certitude mm-hmm. about the knowledge we have is um, the right knowledge. And if you have a different interpretation, uh, yeah. It may be okay for you to, to hurt your body or kill your body if you have the wrong idea. Yeah. Right? That's the way it, <laughs> yeah. gets, it gets played out. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so if we're aware that God, and Sayers explicitly said this, God endorsed the flesh. And this is unique in religions. God endorsed flesh by taking on flesh. Mm, yeah. Um, and of course, other religions, it's just about escaping the flesh, escape the flesh. Mm-hmm. You've got to um, deny the flesh. You've um, got to um, just have the knowledge that, that will, will save you. So in the political arena, we have to think about people's enfleshment. And when you say, oh, you vote that way only because you are a single mother, or you vote that way only because you're a millionaire. Well, of course, their embodiment is going to make a difference in the way they see reality. And yeah. it's like we're um, Christians who would say that are saying, yeah, flesh isn't important. It's all about having the right idea. Um, it's, Sayers talks about heresies a lot. Uh, docetism is a form of Gnosticism, where in the early church, they, um, they said that Jesus only seemed to have a body. Mm-hmm. Um, and an early uh, church leader named Marcion uh, rejected both the uh, Old Testament and um, he also rejected the idea that Christ could be flesh because he says flesh has excrement in it, excrement mm-hmm. in it. Mm-hmm. And how, how could God possibly do that? That's similar to the Muslim attitude. They say, they, they believe that Jesus was a prophet, but he couldn't be God because God would not deign to take on flesh. This is, this is shocking, and people forget how shocking it is that God became flesh. Yeah. So there's a point to shock us back into that realization and then say, if we really believe that God was murdered on the cross, that God took on flesh, that should change the way we treat other humans, which should change politics, our theology, um, but especially our sense that if we have committed our lives to a both and Christ, we need to be Christ-like is to be both and, mm. to consider both sides of, an, of the issue, um, to be open to... Um, ideas that at first disturb us Mm -hmm. to question our own certitude because if we don't question our certitude we're like judas Hmm. wow great that's a great place to to to, well i shouldn't say stop because i have one more question okay and that is who are the writers who make you want to write (sighs) 
Well, well, Dorothy Sayers, yeah. and I tried to channel Dorothy yeah. Sayers. Um, George Eliot. Mm-hmm. I was I taught Victorian literature, so I'm a real fan of the great novelists. I love mm-hmm. Charles Dickens, George Eliot, Jane Austen. Mm-hmm. Um, I I quote Ross Douthat, who is a New York Times uh, Roman Catholic writer for the New York Times, and I show once again how Sayers anticipates what he's saying 80 years in advance. And he's talking about the problems of our culture. I loved Nicholas Carr's, the book, The Shallows, what the internet is doing to our brains. Mm -hmm. Um, Wow. uh, That's a good collection. Yeah. Great. I love it. Um, Okay. Crystal Downing. Thank you so much for being here. You've given me a lot a lot to think about. And, and the, this idea, I mean, we have, we've just begun, I think, to, to, to think about incarnation as, as important and, 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 and the many ways that that impacts the way we make stuff. And um, so, so I, uh, I look forward to, to, I mean, I guess by the time this is, this is released, your book will be out. So good. I'm glad to be out in the world and and in not in flesh but in paper so uh, so thanks Crystal and I hope we can get together and talk again soon The Rabbit Room has partnered with Lipscomb University to make this podcast possible Lipscomb has graciously given us access to their recording studio in the Center for Entertainment and Arts building we're so grateful for their sponsorship their encouragement and the good work they do in Nashville Special shout out as well to Jess Ray for letting us use her song Too Good as part of this podcast. Visit JessRayMusic.com to hear more of her beautiful songs. The Habit Membership is a library of resources for writers by me, Jonathan Rogers. More importantly, The Habit is a hub of community where like-minded writers gather to discuss their work and give each other a little more courage. Find out more at TheHabit.co. This podcast was produced by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. All our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com and to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate.